All right, what's going on, everybody? Welcome back to SaberSim's DFS Office Hours. It is January 29th of 2024. My name is Jordan. I'm the head coach here at SaberSim uh, and hosting Office Hours for the first time in a little while. Uh, Andrew is uh, finishing up a nice beach vacation here. He should be back tomorrow, uh, but you've got me here for today. If this does happen to be your first time tuning into Office Hours, welcome. Uh, this is an open Q&A style show where our coaches hop on every day, 2 o'clock Eastern here, uh, to answer any questions you have about SaberSim, uh, about DFS strategy. It's a great opportunity to kind of have a little bit of a one-on-one -on -one back and forth here where you can answer, ask uh, follow-up questions or clarifying questions. Uh, if there's anything that I'm explaining that is confusing or you want more information on, uh, I'm sure there will be things that I say that are confusing here today. Uh, but uh, fun time of the year here, uh, kind of the, the winding down of NFL season here, uh, but the winding up of some other seasons here. Uh, golf is starting to hit its stride. We've made some awesome improvements to our golf model, our golf field lineups this year. So I've been playing a lot of golf. We've obviously got NBA here uh, going on, about to hit the all-star break, getting to that point in the NBA season where you really have to be paying attention to news, uh, being ready to late swap. Uh, and sometimes you're going to have those slates where you get the late scratch. You don't get an opportunity to react to the news at all. Um, hockey is still kind of going strong, hitting the all-star break for that as well. Um, and NASCAR coming around here soon. We've got Daytona in a couple weeks. Uh, baseball, obviously, on the horizon as well. Uh, so I always kind of like this this time of year. It feels like a, a time of some change in the sports world, uh, some new stuff coming into the fray, um, and then some sports we've been playing for a little while phasing out. So anyway, we've got a few questions in our queue already for today. I got a couple via email in the email box. Um, so we will respond to those. I see some questions already coming in live. So we will, of course, get to those uh, and Discord as well. So those are your channels here. If you have questions for me uh, that you would like me to answer here, the live chat, uh, the Discord server, uh, or if you happen to catch this video, if you're watching this video after I've been live here as a recording on YouTube, you can always email us at support at sabersim.com. So uh, let's go ahead and dive in. Uh, I'm going to start this. Had a kind of straightforward question come into the email box here that I'm going to start with. Um, and let me grab it here. Um, and we'll start here. But we will, of course, get to every question that comes in here today. Um, so let me get this posted here. A little out of practice. A little rusty on the, the office hours uh, muscles here. Uh, simple question. How do I pick the right players to go over their projection? Uh, sounds pretty simple. Um, I think there, there is some interesting things to, to talk about here to, to kind of break down of, of what we really, what's the root of this question here. Um, and I want to start just by kind of saying here. So when we look at Saberson, we see the 50th percentile projection, which for a lot of sports is going to be very similar to the mean projection. It's not exactly the mean projection. Uh, this 50th percentile is the projection that that player scores or the fantasy points that that player scores in half of our sims. Actually, that's that's not really the right way to say it. The player goes over this projection in half the sims. This player goes under this projection in half the sims. So really, when we think about this question, how do we know what players are going to go over? Well, there's not really anything in the model in the sims that's going to get us any closer to that answer, right? All of these players here, by definition, have a 50% chance to go over this, over their respective number and a 50% chance to go under their respective number. Uh, but ultimately, projection in DFS is really just a proxy for what we are trying to do with our lineups, which is win, right? We, we don't really care truly 
if a player goes over under their projection, we can care if lineups containing that player are likely to be profitable here. Um, and I think there are some things that you can do here as you're building your lineups where you can, you know, spend a little bit of extra time looking at some of these players, looking at some of their percentiles, how often they're showing up in winning lineups in your pool, compare that to the ownership projection, and maybe find some opportunities to find players that the field is over or under valuing here. Now, before we talk about that, I do want to just preface this by saying the model's not perfect, right? Uh, so in a perfect world, Luka Doncic is exactly 50% to go over 69 and a half DraftKings points and exactly 50% to go under 69 and a half DraftKings points, right? That, that's not actually the case. There's, there's inefficiencies in the model. There's biases. All projection models are going to have some of these inefficiencies. There is an opportunity for some like handicapping edge or a model making kind of edge where, you know, if you could make a better model than SaberSim or, you know, a different projection model or something like that, you would be, it would be very easy. Well, not necessarily easy, but you could use that and say, okay, these are the players that the field is inefficient on, on how they are projected. These are the players that the entire field is under projecting or over projecting and vice versa. I think that's one of the hardest ways to get an edge in DFS is to be kind of a handicapper, to be a model maker. I, a lot of, when I've done this show in the past and a lot of the videos I do on the YouTube channel and things like that are more focused on like the game theory side of DFS, of using the information you have with a very sharp model like Saber Sim Sims, and then looking for inefficiencies on how the field is playing certain spots, rather than saying, you know, Luca's true actual projection here is 66 and a half um, 66 and a half DraftKings points. So I'm going to fade it, right? That's that. I mean, I find that hard to do. Um, so I'm going to answer this from how I would kind of approach this, which is looking for players that maybe the field is undervaluing. So it would start for me with a build, right? So let's assume that we're building here for a 150 max type contest. And I'm going to make just two pro projection changes here to at least get this build running. And the idea of what I'm basically going to try to do here is look for players that are showing up more frequently in our profitable pool uh, using contest sims than their, their ownership projection indicates, uh, or maybe their percentiles indicate or things like that. So we'll give this a second to run here, then we'll run a contest sim, and then we will keep going here. So um, for what it's worth, especially for maybe folks that are tuning in for the first time, I always like to explain while we're building here, uh, what's kind of going on behind the scenes. So we're now leveraging those simulations to essentially simulate this slate out 5,000 times and build the best possible GPP lineup for each of these simulations here. Uh, so these the lineup pool here is useful, one, to sort through and figure out what lineups we want to actually play and diversify and things like that. But it also conveys some information to us, which is really useful. We're going to basically get 5,000 examples of, of how the slate could play out here. So let's let this build here and finish up and finalize. And now take a look over at our um, metrics here. So I think uh, a few of the, the columns that I find very useful here, very, very helpful when it comes to, you know, just taking a look at this is the pool exposure, your exposure and the leverage column here, right? So the pool exposure, now that we have this build is, is how many lineups in the pool contain a certain player in them. So Jonathan Isaac is showing up in 49.2% of our pool. This can be thought as a way to kind of approximate how often is that player showing up in the winning lineup because this set of 5,000 is the, each of those lineups is the best possible lineup for a given way that the slate could play out. 
If you have ultimate, um, which I know the, the person that asked this question does have ultimate, you can run a contest sim and dial this in even a little bit further. So I'm actually going to do that here. Um, and I'm not going to worry too much about like the actual settings for this particular contest. sim. we'll use kind of the basic settings here just to at least do this as an example here. We can run this contest sim. And what I'm going to try to do here now is see how these lineups are actually performing in a flagship type GPP for tonight. Filter out the ones that aren't grading out as profitable. And then we can look at our pool exposure versus ownership projections to get a little bit of a sense of, you know, what, how often are players showing up in profitable lineups relative to their ownership projections. Now, I can already tell you this is going to look a little bit weird because it's so early in the day. Clearly, we haven't updated ownership for whatever is making Jonathan Isaac a uh, good value play here tonight. Cam Whitmore as well, right? We're, we're kind of early here in the day. Some of our ownership projections haven't uh, quite caught up yet, um, but we can at least take a look here and see how this, um, this is looking here. So again, just to kind of make sure I'm being clear with what we're doing, rather than trying to find players that are going to score more than their projection, because that by definition... It's, it's hard to do. It doesn't make a lot of sense. We're looking for players that are showing up in profitable lineups more than their ownership projection um, indicates. So I'm going to now filter out the lineups here that are unprofitable. Um, so only show lineups that have a greater than 0% ROI. And for NBA, this is often a, a huge portion of your pool. So actually, it's virtually the entire pool here. That might have something to do with the fact that the ownership projections haven't updated yet. Uh, but now what I like to often do here is pull over a couple columns that are really useful for me for this type of research here. Uh, the pool exposure right next to the ownership projection. And I also like to bring over the 95th percentile projection here. And what I like to do here is look for players that are, you know, far outperforming their um, ownership projection in their, their pool here. And for most of these players, we're going to find that Sabersim is getting, getting you to them already here. And it is a little bit weird with the ownership projections that are not updated. But what, what you can do here uh, is look also at very high upside players. I think this is where this kind of analysis becomes the most interesting here is very high upside players that are showing up more highly in their pool than they are in their ownership projection. They can be sometimes opportunities to get a little bit more exposure to a player. And again, with the contest sims, it's already going to do this a little bit for you. You can see uh, we clearly like Luca here. Um, we're already getting some good exposure there. We kind of like Wemby here. We're getting some good exposure there. Um, these are the kinds of players, though, that I like to target as players that have high upside with a higher representation of their pool than their ownership projection. And again, it's a little bit of a weird example just because the ownership projections clearly have not caught all the way up here. But if you've been watching this for, if you've been watching Office Hours for some time or seen my videos on YouTube here, you're probably familiar with this as being called like a research build. I've done this in a couple different ways here before in the past. Um, still something I'm doing with contest sims. But this is the way that I prefer to kind of think about my lineups instead of who's going to score more, their, more than their projection, who's going to uh, basically score more in their percentage of profitable lineups they show up in than their ownership projection. So um, we'll go ahead here and, and keep it rolling. Um, I'm going to jump to you at Discord first, and then we will hop over to the live, um, the live questions here. So um, let me grab this question here. This actually came in over the weekend. Uh, in a small field NBA showdown contest, like 200 player fields, is it important to have a certain amount of min uniques or is that more so applicable in larger field? Thanks. Yeah. So I, there's kind of two 
it's interesting that you said showdown and small field because I think the questions are kind of different there. My general rule of thumb is in showdowns, I'm very light with my touch with min uniques, mostly because you're you only have six players in your lineup or five on FanDuel. Uh, and you generally need the optimal lineup to win the contest. So as you start saying, you know, um, two min uniques and three min uniques, you're, the opportunity cost of the lineups that you're throwing away starts to get higher and higher, right? It's more and more likely that you're throwing away good lineups. Um, in a classic slate, there are so there are so many more profitable lineups that can be played and so many more players that just go into a lineup that as you increase your min uniques, you're often, you're getting that diversity for very little. You're sacrificing negligible expected value and adding diversity to your builds. In Showdown, that, that can be true depending on the slate, but especially in something like NBA, it's much less likely to be true, right? Um, a lineup, two lineups that are the exact same with one player different, um, while eliminating the lesser of the two would diversify your pool, you might be dropping down to a much worse lineup more quickly in something like Showdown or especially NBA Showdown. So I'm a little lighter with my touch on uniques. The other thing too is in, in Showdown in particular, right? Like sometimes there is a very specific construction that allows you to get unique and having multiple shots at that construction in the form of just playing versions of it that are one player different is very good. And eliminating those might, might just drop you down to a, a lesser lineup. Um, with that said, though, I do think in small fields, min uniques are still very useful, right? I wouldn't, I, so I do kind of think these are two different questions about showdown and small fields here. In in small fields, min uniques does a couple things for you, right? It diversifies your pool. I think that's that's what we're all, all familiar with here as a good reason to use min uniques. You're playing lineups that are different from one another uh, so that your results on a slate are not overly concentrated. The other thing min uniques does though is make sure that your lineups are different from one another so that they don't cannibalize each other, right? If you play three lineups into a contest, your lineups are competing with each other to some extent. And if you play three lineups that are all very, very similar, maybe one player different, especially in a small field, those lineups may all have kind of a similar percent chance to take first place, but they can't all literally win first place. So they start affecting the expected value of each other a little bit more as that field gets smaller and smaller. Your 150 lineups played into a millimaker. That contest is so large, they're, they're microscopic drops in the pond and they don't affect each other's expected value as much. That's more about diversification. But in small fields, your min uniques also works to make sure that your lineups are not eating into each other's expected value, right? Uh, so I do think min uniques are very, very important in small fields along with large fields for diversification, but for that particular reason. So I guess to answer this question completely here, I, I would say the showdown side of this kind of supersedes the, the small field side of this, right? Like if the best three lineups you can play into a small field NBA showdown are all very similar to each other, I would probably just play them. But um, I think that's kind of, it's, it's a little bit of a, a push and pull there. So, okay, cool. Uh, question from K Joe here, um, says you've talked a while about doing a video on the idea of simming your, against your Sims to get more unique. Did that ever get released? Uh, no, I, it didn't. I I've cooled on this a little bit. Um, the idea here just to catch folks up who maybe aren't familiar with what we're talking about here. Uh, I think actually the last time I was on office hours, I talked about exporting your pool of profitable lineups from one build uploading it to another build, and then simming those lineups against each other 
to decide which ones to ultimately play. Um, the point of that was basically to make your lineups compete against each other as a kind of a portfolio optimization thing to see which ones to play. Um, I don't want to go too deep into it here. The, the main reason I've cooled on it uh, is it's really, I guess, twofold, kind of, kind of the same reason. First, when I first recorded that video, we didn't have live updating fields, right? So now when you like, as you are late swapping throughout the night, you are late swapping against increasingly accurate versions of what your opponents are actually playing, right? So part, part of the problem of doing this in the first place was like figuring out how to do this in late swap at all. But now I just think there's so much of a value of actually swapping your lineups against the lineups they're competing against as you're getting more and more information about the slate that like the best possible, the best possible way to decide what the best lineups are to play in your contest is to sim them against the most accurate versions of the lineups they are competing against. That actually now happens with our live fields that that didn't exist when I last talked about this. Um, the other thing is that our pre-lock fields have actually gotten a lot, a lot better, right? If you decide what lineups to play in your contest by simulating a potential pool of them against each other, the one thing you lose there is the difference between the one thing you lose there is actually how, how good those lineups are individually against the field you expect to play them into. And as those fields have gotten better, that, that, that conviction for me has gotten stronger, right? Uh, part of the core of this idea before was that like, if we took all of the lineups in your pool that had at least a 100% ROI, for example, one of the ideas I had there was that a lot of those lineups might actually be very similar similar because the, there is uncertainty in the fields, right? Well, now I feel much more confident that my top lineup in my pool is actually the best lineup, or I feel more confident than I did the last time I talked about this. So I don't want to give up that data point by grouping all of those lineups together, simming them against each other, and just picking the best ones that come out of that. Um, so I've cooled on it. I didn't want to record a video also because I think this concept is a little confusing. I'm sure there's somebody listening along right now that is like, what is Jordan talking about? It's kind of a hard concept to explain. I don't think it adds a ton. Um, I think maybe there's still some interesting things to think about there on the portfolio optimization side, but I think it's kind of confusing and I don't think it adds a ton. Uh, so no video on that, but um, cool. Um, okay. Question from hammer here. We're already 20 minutes in and I have a ton of questions to answer. I tend to get a little wordy on these uh, streams, so I apologize uh, for that here. But we'll, we'll make sure we get to everybody's questions. Uh, Hammer, can you talk about why the NBA is so much harder than NFL, MLB, taking into account variance? Seems like the better lineups, one has the higher points you have to score just to make it into the money. Okay, so I'm a you lost me a little bit on the second sentence. Um, in terms of NBA being harder than NFL or MLB, I mean, I, I don't know if I necessarily agree um that like one is harder than the other i do think there is you know this idea that you know seasons as seasons progress the sports get harder from a dfs perspective uh casual money dries up a little bit um you know whether that's just people that got bored of the nba or got tired of having to late swap every night or ran out of money right casual money tends to dry up a little bit uh the grinders are always going to be there grinding the contest so as you see contests shrink throughout the season which they tend to do generally you should know that that is soft money leaving those contests. That is not sharp money leaving those contests. So um, I personally, around this time, around all-star break, I do scale back a little bit 
on NBA. Um, I'm still playing, you know, most nights, but I do scale back a little bit. That's just something I've learned here. Uh, it's a little bit easier to beat these sports earlier in the season. You'll get a little boost in the playoffs again. I think there's some money that comes back in in the playoffs, but they do get tougher as seasons go on. I don't know if NBA is like strictly tougher than NFL or, or MLB. Um, I think the strategies required are a little bit different. Um, I think, you know, in NBA, my process for for what i do on an nba slate has basically become make sure i am swapping with as much information as i can as efficiently as possible every time i can right i think that's what the edge in nba is increasingly becoming it's you know who who can can swap as quickly as possible to react to as much information as possible right like this time last year i talked a lot about late swap being a massive edge um to react to breaking news and I think there's still an edge there, but a lot more of the field is reacting now. So what a lot of SaberSim users now have the ability to do is not only react to the breaking news, but react to performance of the games in progress and the updating field lineups, right? That's an additional edge. And so my my NBA process, uh, I've recorded some videos for folks in our, our email inbox, and I think people are always surprised at how simple it is, is really just build, run the contest sim, diversify, and make sure I am around for every single swap updating to react to every bit of live data we're getting throughout the slate. Um, and again, it's still DFS, right? Like I, my goal in NBA is to have, you know, maybe one or two slates a season where I'm, I'm making 75 to 90% of my profit for the year on that slate, right? A lot of the slates are, are going to be losing slates. Um, that's just the way it works. So yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't know if I necessarily agree that that NBA is harder, um, but yeah. And if I missed something in the second part of this question, let me know. I was a little confused there on, on what you were referring to there. So, um, okay. Um, Sammy said, hi, Jordan. I know in the past you always refer to use the 10% bump up or down when adjusting projections. Does that apply to all sports or can we go lower than that? And which sports would you suggest to go lower? Yeah, th this is, um, I think this works in a, in a vacuum. Um, so what Sammy's referring to here, a lot of times when I tell people if they think a projection is a little bit off or wrong, or they just want more exposure to a player and can't get it with default settings to make an adjustment of like 10% ish to that player's projection. Um, I think that's a good starting point. I think for NBA, that works pretty well. I think for NFL, that works pretty well. Some sports are more sensitive to projection updates than others. Like golf is an example of one where um, since the projections for players are often just very close. There are often less salary inefficiencies in a sport like golf. Sometimes a 10% adjustment actually has a huge impact on your build. Uh, so I often start like a little bit closer to 5% or so for a sport like golf. I think it's more something rather than saying this is the right or the wrong way to do it. I think being in a five, five to even 20% range for different sports, it, it's ultimately going to come down to like testing it out, right? Like if you're not getting any exposure, let me see if I can like find somebody here. And you can, there, there's often like little clues you can use to kind of help with this here. So if we look back and go back to 95th percentiles here for MBA. Um, okay. So let's say we really wanted to get some exposure to Giannis, maybe as an example here tonight, we have 4% of him in our pool, right? You can kind of see like, what is the, what does Giannis need to get to, to, for the builder to start putting him into lineups and the the players in this range of 95th percentile here are all floating around you know five five and a half to six x value here 
So if Giannis got up to there, so if we made an adjustment of six points and bumped him up to, what is that, 65-ish, that gets him to 5.7. That's a 10% adjustment here. That's going to put him more competitive point per dollar in the range of these other players here. And now if we rebuilt, I'm sure we would get more Giannis showing up in our pool. So it kind of just depends, you know, again, on the sport and the slate. Um, but yeah, 5 to 10 to potentially 20% if you're taking a big stand on a player that we really don't like should work there. So, um, Okay. Notice sometimes that I'll get NBA showdown lineups with 65 to 70% cash rates, which seems crazy and thus a very high ROI. What contributes to that and how might we want to balance those as suspect, as you suspect they are highly duped? Um, yeah, so, okay, let me think about this here. So it is normal uh, to see very high cash rates in NBA. Um, the main reason why is because that, you know, the, the contest sims are, are a little bit, greedy in the way that they they work right like we are taking uh lineups built using saberson projections presumably unless you've made projection adjustments here and then grading them against what we think the field is likely to do using the saberson simulations right the same sims that were used to generate the projections and build the lineups grade how those lineups look against the field using an industry aggregate projection so the sims are going to somewhat perceive you know, not only overinflated cash rates, but also much overinflated sim ROI than what you are actually likely to see long term, right? You're not going to get a 2000% ROI long term with this lineup, right? Because especially in a sport like NBA, where it comes down a lot to projection and players' most common outcomes are frequently around their projection, a 2% discrepancy in Saber Sims projection versus the industry aggregate is going to show up as a very high, uh, a very high like profit opportunity for you in your builds. Now, uh, real quickly on the model side, we have been working to bring those inefficiencies in the sim in, right? We've, we've done quite a bit of work here in the last month to improve, especially the MBA model to make it kind of more um, accurate in that sense. But that, that is normal here. Um, the other thing is on showdown, since you mentioned it specifically on um, showdown. I think that the cash rate is just defined in our Sims as being made any money at all. So if you have a lineup that is ex exceptionally duped, that lineup's cash rate is actually going to show up um, pretty highly because that lineup is not competing with the lineups it's duplicated with, right? If they're all on the min cash line and you end up like getting 10% of your entry fee back because you have this massive train of lineups that all min cash, basically, um, it's still going to treat that as, it's still going to treat that as a sim where the lineup cash, so your cash rate's going to be artificially higher, um, but it will account for the dupes correctly in the sim ROI. So all of this to say like cash rate can be a little bit misleading when it comes to duplication, because it's it's just the percentage of the time that lineup made any money. It's not taking into account how much money it shared with, but ROI is taking that into account, right? Because it's ROI is most heavily driven by the first place outcome, the top 1% outcomes. Those, the pot is being split correctly in the Sims in that case, and the ROI is, effect, is being affected correctly. So uh, I guess short version of this, all of this to say, I guess there's, there's like two things here. One is, be very cautious of cash rate 
playing a role in your process at all for showdown. I wouldn't even look at it, right? Because it's just not what really matters and it misleads some of the information. Part two of that is cash rates, ROIs, all of these metrics here are going to be partially inflated because we are like building the lineups with, with the answers to the test a little bit. So I wouldn't take this in a vacuum and say, oh, I'm going to have a 2000% ROI every time I play this lineup. I still think this lineup is very likely to be profitable. I'd wager it's still likely to be the most profitable lineup in your pool, but the contest sims mislead a little bit there because of that. And, you know, we've talked about that a little bit here on our end of like ways that we could, you know, make that look a little bit better, right? 2000% ROI does look a little weird. Um, but that's the actual number that comes out of the Sims, right? All of the solutions we had kind of talked about here would be like artificially deflating that number so it looks better. But our approach here was to just, you know, provide the actual raw data that comes out of the Sim and let you kind of take it for what it is there. So, all right. Um, okay. Teddy G has a question here. And a couple more questions in Discord, then we'll hop over to the live chat. Hey, Jordan, if I'm playing 10 different single entries on a given slate, how do you suggest filling each entry with its respective contest sim while also adjusting exposures? After setting min uniques and adjusting exposures, I generally change my lineups from 1 10 to 1. However, it seems to throw the builder off a bit if my exposures aren't on the default 0 to 100 settings. Hopefully my question makes sense. Thank you. Yeah, honestly, I would probably just recommend grouping most of your single entries together right? Like they are often going to have very similar fields and very similar payout structures, right? That's not, that's not a hundred percent true all the time here, but um, it's pretty generally true, right? Like you can see, so these are the, the single entries that at least we have loaded here. They all pay about 10% to first, 20 to 25% of the field caches, um, I mean, with some exceptions here, maybe if you're playing some of the high stakes stuff, it, it makes sense to split that out into its own contest sim and handpick a lineup. But if I was playing, you know, the five fifty, the $1, the $2, the 12 the 555 and the 4444 these are very similar contests that are likely going to have pretty similar fields here. I would probably just group them all together. So basically run a build run a run it run a contest sim against one of those here figure out what your 10 best lineups are then set exposures diversify min uniques whatever and just fill them you could do unique rank or unique random into your actual contests um that's how i would probably recommend doing this um i think it just especially if you if you want to manage exposures for those different contests that's probably the easiest thing to do um I would imagine you could actually test this for yourself if you wanted it, create a contest sim for all of those different contests, run a build on single entry settings and simulate them all, simulate your entire field against all those contests and see, is there any difference between the top lineup or is there any meaningful difference between the top lineup for all of those different contests? Maybe at the stakes, maybe at like the very high stakes, it'll be different than at the low stakes here. I could see potentially that being different, but what I have found anecdotally in, in my play is that you're for like single entries of the same size and roughly the same payout structure, your, your contests are going to grade out very, or your lineups are going to grade out very similarly for each of those contests. So that's how I've done most of mine. Um, this is a little sport dependent too. Like in NBA, you might, you might have like really no time to split all those out into different contests in a sport like golf. 
maybe you do have a little bit more time. Um, but I have been mostly across the board, either grouping all of my contests together in NBA uh, because I just don't have time to split things up or in a sport like golf where you do have more time to, to get your lineups into the right contests. I typically group single entry and three max like entirely together and 20 max and 150 max entirely together using kind of one contest sim for each of those. And that's worked for me. So, uh, okay. All right. Um, Ryan here says last question in discord. Then we move to the live chat here. Thank you for everyone's patience. Uh, hey, Jordan, is there a danger with late swapping using the contest sims if projections haven't really changed? Are you just getting lineups that are higher variance but not really better? Thanks. Um, I don't really think there's a lot of danger here, uh, especially now that we have the late swap pools, right? I used to talk about late swap across the board as something that you kind of only wanted to do when there was news that broke because... This time last year, roughly, when you would late swap, when you would build your lineups pre-lock, you would have your large pool of lineups to work with, and you'd be identifying the best ones out of that pool to play. But when you late swapped, we would only rebuild each lineup once. Now each lineup gets built, rebuilt, you know, 5,000 divided by number of lineups times. So you're still identifying the best possible swaps most of the time. I, I don't think there's a lot of danger. Um, I, I think... If anything, you're maybe even adding a little bit of value because you're you're swapping against increasingly more accurate fields and you're getting the live data, right? So, you know, let's say it comes time to swap this slate tonight here, so it's 5.30 my time. Even if no projections have changed for the rest of the slate here, you are at least now accurately swapping against a more accurate idea of how were, how owned were the players in these games and how are they performing so far. That's valuable. Um I, the only thing that comes to mind is like a potential danger here is if you are, if you tinker with your lineups a lot and you have spent a ton of time dialing in exposures and, and adjustments and things like that, it becomes increasingly harder for the builder to meet all of those as you are late swapping throughout a slate and as players are getting locked into your lineups. That's one thing to, to keep in mind, right? If you have really finely tuned your build at lock, it may be better to wait until you see, you know, a significant a significant projection change in the discord alerts before you actually run the late swap so that you know you're if you have to sacrifice some of the exposures that you worked hard to curate you know that you're doing it for good reason and not for negligible projection changes but i'm not that kind of player and for me i'm swapping at every single lock every single time no questions asked i don't need a significant projection change but that's because i to me the most valuable thing even in a slate where we got no news at 5.30, it would be very valuable to me to swap knowing how the first quarter went in these games and any discrepancies in the ownership projections. So. Cool. All right. Over to live chat. Um, I think I saw this coming in the report um, as well. Running a sim for the main slate in basketball earlier this morning, getting risk-adjusted ROI over 3,000 is something I'm doing incorrectly. I mean, I have risk risk adjusted ROI over six thousand here. I think most likely it's uh, your. Um, I think it's building in a window where the projections have updated and the ownership projections haven't. That that is more. You're more likely to see that during the day, especially for NBA, mostly because the ownership projections. We we can run our new sims to react to news basically whenever we want. Ownership projections are a little bit 
dependent on how other models are reacting to things. So as news is breaking throughout the day, if there's, you know, if, if others like models haven't really adjusted yet, we don't really know how the field's going to react yet. So the ownership projection will stay the same. And then you'll see a situation where, uh, Jonathan Isaac is the fifth best value on the board and he's projected for 1% ownership and the contest Sims love to play. So I, I don't think you're doing anything wrong. I think it's just uh, a kind of a midday thing that you're seeing here. Um, Eagle says, ever since yo-yo Sims were fixed, that can be 10 to 15 minutes late. So when it comes to reacting to late, late news, is there any way to correct this? We would prefer to have yo-yo sims over extended delays. Um, yeah, I, I don't have like a extremely satisfying answer for you right now. Uh, we are like always having conversations on our end about ways to make our information update quickly and accurately. And that's a matter of just kind of striking that balance there. Um, I know there were frustrations that at first we had the, the yo-yo sims for, and for people that maybe don't know what I'm talking about here, it would be news breaks in the middle of an NBA slate. We immediately run a sim that updates for that news. And then a sim runs a few minutes later that kind of walks some of that back or changes some of that back. There were frustrations in the Discord community about that because it's hard to know, like, when do I actually swap? Do I swap when the first time the sim runs to update? Or do I wait? How do I know if some, another sim is coming? Right? That was a little bit of a frustrating experience. Um, we have heard some now kind of follow-up frustrations about it taking a little while for news to break, uh, especially, or not for news to break, for Sims to run after news breaks. That is especially true in news that is very, you know, very surprising, right? Like a, uh, a player gets ruled out that was not even questionable. Sometimes that can take a little bit of time to percolate. Yeah, I don't, I don't have like a very satisfying answer at the moment. It is, it is always something we are working on to try to make information update um, quickly and accurately and balance those two sometimes competing factors um you know the one other thing to remember too is that when that does happen everybody's under the same time crunch um i think you know a lot of times i have folks ask me uh you know something like i've got the basics of how do use saber sim how to play these different sports what have you what's the next step that i can take what what's something new that i can start doing to my builds here i think taking some agency over those last second breaking news type situations is a good step to take, right? Um, not saying, you know, you, you, um, not, not saying taking full responsibility for updating your own projections when news breaks, right? Because the Sims will run, the information will update. But if you are playing multiple sites or multiple slates and you need information to update faster than it is, you know, studying what happens when the Sims run and how projections tend to change when a player gets ruled out, right? What, what do the bumps look like? How does that move? And making those adjustments a little bit ahead of time on your own to get your turbo slate lineups built, your showdown slate lineups built while you wait for the final Sim to run so that you're ready for your main slate where most of your action is, Right, that is a that is kind of a level up that you can do to your process to just make everything a little bit smoother. That's what I often do. Let's say it's six o'clock here tonight, and um, we get news all of a sudden that somebody not questionable that Wemby has the night off, right? And all of a sudden, we have this feeling there's going to be a ton of additional Spurs value coming. 
right? Well, what what can we do here to get the, is there a showdown for this slate done? To get the showdown for this slate in, there isn't. Uh, to get the six o'clock turbo lineups built, right? What I typically end up doing is giving these players, you know, maybe that 10 to 15% jump, run my build, maybe get an initial swap in there and then see how that, that Sabersim Sim kind of, you know, finalizes all of that information after the lineups are built. I, I do think there is a little bit of a level up there and I'm not, I don't want this to come across like I'm pushing the agency of updating to breaking news onto anybody um, because we're not, because the Sim will run to react to that news as it breaks when we have enough information to do so accurately. But th there's not really any surprise. Like it's it's not unclear to anybody what exactly is going to happen if Victor Wembanyama got ruled out 10 minutes before this game locks, right? Somebody's got to play the big minutes here and a lot of the usage is just going to get spread out amongst the team. So anyway, uh, but yes, it's something that we are working on persistently. Um, Super Bowl projections, uh, probably next week. Maybe we, we might have something towards the end of this week, but I would assume I would assume uh, next week. Oh, the, all the NFL stuff is kind of weekly based just because that's the nature of the sport. So I would be surprised if anything comes up this week, but probably next week. Uh, Patrick says, when you aggressively have your min uniques up in NBA, does it hurt to build when late swapping because your exposures are everywhere? Uh, no. Um, I, I don't think it hurts anything. I, I actually like min uniques before lock um for nba because it does like it does kind of spread you out i like to you know we're, we're building our lineups at lock for this slate 11 games we have two games at lock we know things are going to change right stuff's going to happen news is going to break it's it's a, it's an inevitability at this point so i kind of like being more spread out early so i i use a more aggressive min unique early in the slate to to spread out intentionally so that my lineups are are different from one another. And then I'll typically tone down my min uniques throughout the slate as we're getting news breaking, as we're getting a more accurate idea of how players in games have performed, what the actual fields you're competing against are. And I'll kind of slowly work my way back down to one min unique throughout the slate um, to, to react to that live data. But I think the diversification of min uniques does help early on, early on here to spread you out. Uh, it's especially useful, like, so we have 76% Quentin Grimes, who is a fine value play, right? And if there was no late swap here, I might be totally comfortable with 76% Quentin Grimes. But if we started diversifying here with Min Uniques, right, we'll bring that down a little bit, which actually, I guess, it, it does spread you out into other plays in this game here. Um, but there are less lineups where your shooting guard, small forward, forward, or guard spot is occupied by Quentin Grimes, giving you more flexibility to update later as we're diversifying. So uh, Victor said, our contest sim is important to add to the builds. Uh, I found that just using the lineups, it generates never produces top scores. Okay, so kind of two questions here. So first, contest sims are very valuable. They are not a necessity, right? You can actually see this um, just by looking at if we sort by Saber score. Oh, we are sorted by Saber score. You can look and see the ROI here of different lineups. Let me pull this over here relative to their Sabre score. So these are the top Sabre score lineups from our pool. And we see that these lineups have very high ROIs, right? That makes sense because Sabre score is back tested using contest sims, right? The, the variables that make up Sabre score 
these were backtested and set using a contest simulator to identify how much to value projection, percentile, and ownership, right? So Sabre score is often going to be directionally correct. What you get out of contest sims is you get a more you get more precision and more accuracy in what truly are the top lineups from your pool. So it is a value add. It is by no means a necessity. Um, I, I've, it's 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 very useful. It's very powerful. I do think it's where DFS is going is increasingly more powerful contest sims. But if you are playing with a smaller bankroll, grinding a lot of the low stakes kinds of contests, by no means should you feel like you absolutely must have ultimate or contest sims to be successful in DFS, right? Um, so, um, and then Victor said, I found that using the lineups that generates never produces top scores. Yeah, I mean, producing a top score is hard, right? A lot of times in DFS, we are trying to take something, profitable in DFS is a lot of times taking something that on average for the field should happen 1% of the time and making it happen for you 1 1.3, 1 1.4, 1 1.5% of the time right? Top 1% finish rates is something that people a lot of times use as a way to judge how well they are playing DFS, right? Um, and fit, placing one and a half percent of your entries in the top 1% of the contest, generally, that, that would be an indication that you're playing very well, you're playing profitably. That's still only going to happen one, one and a half percent of the time. And that isn't even winning the contest, right? That's finishing in the top 1%. Right in a forty thousand person contest like the one dollar twenty max, that's finishing in the top four hundred. You might finish in the top four hundred and not even care because you turned your your dollar in that case to five dollars or whatever it happens to be. So all of this really is to say that's why contest selection, bankroll management is something that we talk about endlessly here on our content and in our community and in our channel because the the edges that you are pushing in DFS are. Um, you, you reap the rewards of them infrequently, right? That's just the nature of the game. That doesn't happen often. You you can see it in the contest end as well, right? And these are even a little artificially inflated. Win rate, half percent, right? And we talked about earlier how these are inflated, right? If the cash rate's a little inflated and the ROI's inflated, then you know the win rate's a little inflated, right? These are these are the kinds of things. This is the these are the expectations we should have ahead of time or lower than this, right? This is like the best case scenario expectation, right? Now it still delivers a profit over the long term, but it, it takes a while to, to recoup that here, right? So um, if you haven't seen the DFS profit plan on our YouTube channel, that's the right place to start. It will show you how to manage your bankroll and select contests in a way that will let you weather the swings and realize your profit on the one or two slates over the course of the season. It, it actually happens for you, so. Uh, Mike says with DK doing the single entry leaderboard series this week, would you build a thousand or more lineups and make a group of use at least one of the top one leverage players? Um, I don't think you, I mean, you could, I don't, I don't think you like need to do this unless I'm, I, maybe I'm misunderstanding this. I haven't looked into the single entry leaderboard. I, I, I don't know if they're doing like additional prizes for finishing positions in these contests. And maybe that's what you're referring to. What I would do if I was building for this contest, specifically for this contest, is build a set of lineups um, on single entry settings. 
So presumably the contest is about this size. I would build 5,000 of these and I would sim your lineups against this contest. Assuming you are on ultimate, if you are not, that's fine. Just skip this step. But, um, you know, maybe you're playing the 222, right? So this is going to say what this will pull in is like, here's what we expect a high stakes field to look like with 625 entrants in it tonight and this payout structure. And I would build um, 5,000 of these and see how they perform. And I would look to find the one that tickles your fancy, right? Maybe it has a high leverage, high upside player that you don't think the field is going to use. Uh, maybe it's constructed in a way that you like, right? You'll get basically 5,000 kind of different versions of those lineups. That's that's how I would set it up. Uh, Isaac said, for late swap, is it possible to swap using two different sorts? For example, when late swapping 150 lineups, can 75 of those update using risk-adjusted ROI and 75% ownership? I don't think if they're in the same contest, you can at the moment. Uh, the late swap fills, man, I'm going to have to go back here, maybe to like here. Yeah. Um, oh, do I have an entries file here? Oh, that's annoying. The, the fill methods for late swap, like you can choose to fill different contests with different lineups, um, but I don't think you can choose to put different lineups into, like different sorted lineups into different entries at the moment. Um, so yeah, not right now. Uh, Manny said, hi, Jordan. Do you recommend using filters in NBA? For example, players with projections over 20 points. Is there a better way to curate in a pool of players? Thank you. Um, again, I think it's one of those things. It's unlikely to be bad. I also don't know how good it's going to be, like in terms of what that actually gives, gives you, right? Um, I think, hmm. I, I think at best what you are going to do in a sport like NBA by doing something like that is saving a very maybe small percentage of bad lineups that might be popping up into your pool. But there won't be very many of those anyway, right? Like you could set a filter tonight and say, um, you know, only use players that have over a 20-point projection. And if anything, I guess maybe that's going to remove a handful of Scotty Pippen Jr. lineups from your pool here, um, who it looks like that some, some news just broke about the Grizzlies here. Um, maybe some Peyton Watson lineups, but also I don't even know if that's something you necessarily want to do, right? Like these guys are viable plays on the slate here tonight. It even looks like the field is going to be getting to them. So I don't know personally if, if it adds a, a ton of value to be creating that kind of filter, um, especially at the player level. I think there might be a more interesting argument. I would explore that at a lineup level if you want to go that direction, is setting lineup projection floors. Now, the challenge there is, of course, figuring out where the floor, the logical floor is, right? Uh, if you set a projection floor on your lineups too high, you're going to be playing very chalky lineups. If you set it too low, it's almost the same as not having done it at all. But I think... Um, I, I would explore that more at the lineup level rather than the player level. 
So, um, how oh, how would you best use Sabersome on a standard plan with a small bankroll of like $150? What contest would you go for and how to use Sabersome to help with this? So first of all, I would watch the DFS profit plan video on our YouTube channel here. Um, I, I think it is still functional at this kind of bankroll. You would be probably wanting to play five to 10 bucks a night here with $150. You can play the quarter jukebox. Um, I think you could play a dime time. You could play the $1 and the $2 single entries and you'd be playing, you know, about 10 bucks a night here. Um, and that's, I mean, you would have, you know, an you'd have an opportunity in the quarter jukebox to win a couple hundred dollars on that investment, which is going to be pretty good for, for ROI. Um, I would, I'm, I'm thinking through the math quickly in my head, like even, $150 is low. I would like I would set reasonable expectations that I think it's going to be hard to um consistently profit enough there to even kind of pay for your monthly membership with a $150 starting point. If you can get that to $500, I think all of a sudden it starts to make some sense. I think $150 is a little bit low. Um what I would do from there is on our YouTube channel, watch my guide for whatever sport you are most interested in playing. Um, so if it's NBA, this guide, um, I need to update this. College football ended a little while ago here. Um, actually, I need to update this here. <laughs> uh, I have a golf guide up as well. You can find it in the videos here, how to be PGA DFS in 2024. These guides, I put them out at the start of every sports season, is basically like step-by-step, -step, here's how I build my lineups for these contests, for these sports. And using this as a foundation to kind of figure out what, what should you be doing is the best place to start. Uh, but I do think, I, I think you can certainly be successful at a very small bankroll. And the DFS profit plan, which also is worth noting, is right here, will show you a good way to select contests for those types of uh, or for that kind of bankroll. But I think if you if you get that up a little bit higher, I think you're going to find that that's a little bit more um, sustainable in terms of like actually making profit against your membership fee over the long term. Uh, Don says, does using MinUniques add value in NBA large play contests? Yeah, yeah, it does. I mean, it it again, the whole point of it, especially in that type of contest here is saying, there are a ton of lineups that you can play. There are a ton of lineups that can be built for this slate. Uh, there are a ton of profitable lineups for this slate that are all probably very different from one another. Rather than playing the set of 150 lineups that is all very, very similar to one another, I'm going to sacrifice a little bit of raw ROI to play a more diversified portfolio. It's the same way in like any kind of like financial investing, right? Let's say, you know, you had a a great financial model and you knew that, you know, maybe a, a given stock or something like that was very likely to go up. Right. Just as an example, I clearly I'm not a, a financial guy, but this is just an example here, right? You would probably want to diversify what you have to kind of invest in that opportunity across different options. Even if one of those stocks you thought was the best opportunity to spread out in the case that you're wrong, 
right? It takes like one, one turned ankle on the basketball court to completely sink your lineups for that night, even if it was the right thing to do over the long term. And minimizing the opportunities of that happening, happening and just cratering you while sacrificing very little in terms of your expected profit is just a good thing to do. So that's kind of the idea of it. Um, all right. Getting caught up here. Um, Patrick says, uh, I want to learn how to play League of Legends. Is there a tutorial video on Saber? How does Saber Sim come up with projections for kids playing a video game? Yeah, we do um, have a... It's a little old here. Um, or maybe it's called Esports. Yeah, Ultimate Guide. So, I mean, it's, it's years old um, at this point, but it is a very good video. This one is a little bit newer as well that Andy and I did. This is talking about League of Legends and Counter-Strike. Um, oh, this is a good one too. That I forgot about this video here. This is a good one about just like the process of learning how to learn a new sport, which is a good video here as well. Um, it's a it's a fun sweat. I like it quite a bit. It's a very high highly correlated um, sport where you know stacking ends up being. It's kind of uh, this combination of a higher correlated sport and a sport where you need to avoid duplication, right? Because the the um, the player pool is small, the sizes of the lineups themselves is small, and the field is sharp, re relatively sharp. So people are often building in kind of a correlated way. So like lineups are naturally going to be very similar to one another because, you know, lineups that contain the ADC from a particular team here uh, are likely to stack up that team, right? There are less, there are less profitable constructions of a given lineup that contain a certain player because people know to stack players up. Um, but it's, it's a lot of fun. Um, I do, I highly recommend it here. Um, it is a pretty projectable and a pretty simmable sport. Um, we actually have a, a pretty strong model here for both league of legends and counter-strike. Um, so I would, I would definitely check it out. I, th I think it's a lot of fun. So uh, Nick says, looking at Saber score recently and got a bit confused. Why does small slate use the 99th percentile lineup score, but large slate uses the 95th percentile? Can you help me build some intuition for that? Yeah, the 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 way I think about this is what outcome does a lineup need to be successful in the contest? Um, as the size of a slate gets smaller, there are less possible players to be in. There are less possible players in the pool so players that the ownership projections of all players is likely to go up your lineup needs a higher outlier finish to outperform other lineups in the contest right so as as the i i guess another way of thinking at it is as the size of a slate gets smaller in terms of the number of games the more likely your lineup to win that contest needs to be close to the actual mathematical optimal highest scoring lineup that could have been built, which means that lineup needs to perform higher and higher in its percentile outcome. Right. So same thing, vice versa with um, the size of the slate going up, you need a, the, you need less close to the optimal lineup. So the percentile used to score those lineups goes down. It also works the same way in contest size. The larger your contest is, the more lineups you are competing against, 
the more out, the higher and higher of an outlier performance you need from your lineups to win that contest. The smaller a contest gets, the less likely you need to get to the optimal there. Let me know if that helps. That's the way I think about it in terms of like building an intuition. That's that's the way it intuitively makes sense to me. Um, but Chuck says, does it make sense to use normalized value instead of using maxed scaled value? Or is there any benefit to mixing the two? Oh, I'm going to get exposed here. I uh, Let's look at these. I know we made a change here recently to these and I am hoping that I can explain them well. I might need to ask what the difference between these two are. Um, I know these were, I know this was max scaled was added recently and I am not sure that I can accurately define the difference of these two at the moment, which probably is an indication that these need tooltips or that these uh, what's in parentheses here is not sufficient. Um, uh, what I believe is happening here is that normalized is actually putting it on a scale. Okay. I actually do think that now I'm looking at these normalized, I believe is putting it on a scale from zero to hundred so that the highest value, the highest value projected lineup in your pool becomes 100 and the lowest becomes zero scaled just puts it on a scale out of, out of 100. So your highest would become 100 in that case. But your like if your highest projected lineup was 200 and your lowest projected lineup was 100 on normalized, the 200 projected lineup will be now 100. And the 100 lineup will now be zero. On max scale, the 200 lineup would now have a value of 100. And the 100 projected lineup would now have a value of 50 because it's, it's scaled. It's not, it's not normalized across the entire um, distribution there. It's scaled so such that the highest is 100. So there's, this is another one of those things where like one of these is not right. And one of them is not wrong. It is really, what are you intending to do with this metric? How do you want your, how do you want these values represented in this formula? Um, in a general sense, I would say you should probably pick one and use it across the board because otherwise you're kind of comparing comparing across multiple different like scaling methods but there's not one that's right and one that's wrong so i would actually say there's probably a a disadvantage to mixing them rather than a benefit but that's not strictly true there are, there's reasons why maybe you would want to combine them it just depends on what your formula looks like Um, okay. Yeah, I think Nick's right here. Or kind of. I, I think they are both scaled such that the max value is 100 for the the given metric. It's just, what is the bottom? Is the bottom also scaled, like locked? Is the bottom locked to zero or is it just scaled based on whatever the top is? So, okay. I got to hit the gas here a little bit. We have a lot of questions. Um, that's okay. So Sam Yule said, when late swapping, I know we can have up to five contest sims. Well, which sims should I use for late swapping? Uh, I've seen that Andrew uses late swaps only when there's significant changes when sims run. Okay. So kind of two questions here. So um, when you are late swapping, I, I this is kind of, this is a little bit sport dependent, right? In theory, you would want to run your late swap build, 
right? So create new versions of each original lineup and simulate them against every contest you're playing. So your best possible swap for a given lineup gets, so you would, you know, you would sort, I don't have an entries file and we, we can't like swap right now, but you would find the best 20 lineups for your 20 max and fill them into the 20 max contest. Find your best single entry lineup, fill it into your single entry and so on, right? That would let you swap to all updating news on a per contest basis. In practice, you don't always have the time to actually do that. So I think it's a little bit of a balance of optimizing for individual contests versus the time it takes for you to step through those steps. For me, I often either, I do one of two things. I'll either just late swap everything together and pick one contest to run the contest sim and just fill everything in. And I'll give up a little bit of optimization there. But what I will have gained is that I can do this reliably every single time I need to swap with no concerns about missing a lock. Alternatively, I will split them up into kind of, I'll do single entry and three max together and 20 max and 150 max in a different bucket and fill those two separately. And I think that captures about 90% of the value between those two different contest types and lets me still get my swaps in. In a sport where you have plenty of time to run your late swap, right? Like NFL, I often had a lot of, I wasn't like super pressed for time to get my NFL late swaps in. You can split those up into as many late swaps as you see fit. And in each case, you're going to be a little bit more optimized for what contests they're going into. So uh, if Andrew is recommending people only late swap when there's significant changes, I, I think that's, I think that's fine. And I think that's like generally fine advice. I, I just prefer to basically do it before every lock because I don't think there's a lot of downside to it and I have the time to do it. And it's a, a place to squeeze out a little bit of additional edge there. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's not a huge difference there. It, it kind of depends on like when in the slate you are as well, right? Like early on in the slate, if there's no significant projection changes, it's unlikely that anything in the very early games will dramatically have shifted your lineups. But later in the slate, right? Like if it's now the 6.30 window or so, even if there's no significant projection changes before before the Orlando and Dallas game here, you now are getting quite a bit of information about what your fields look like in all of these games here. That's valuable. So it kind of depends on when when you're in this, where you're at in the slate. Uh, Patrick says, would you recommend the following for future reference? Embiid gets ruled out three minutes prior to lock. Do we take his projections and give it to the player who's starting on his behalf, Paul Reed? Um, I, I wouldn't go that far, right? I would, I would, um, let's see, let's take, is there a decent example here? Um, let me see. Um, what I would recommend doing in general here is um, I think there's a couple things you can do. I think you can make a rough minutes assessment here, right? So let's say AD gets ruled out here and we need to make, and I don't know, to be completely honest, I don't, I don't strictly know the Lakers rotation. I don't know who's certainly going to get those minutes here uh, at the center. I guess it could potentially be Jared Vanderbilt, but let's say you're assuming it's Christian Wood or you want to kind of split the difference there. 
I think what can be useful is doing a quick calculation of point per minute value and then making an adjustment based on that, right? Like Anthony Davis is an extremely high point per minute producer. If Christian Wood comes in and gets the same number of minutes as Anthony Davis does, which maybe isn't even what would happen here, he's not going to be projected for 52, but we know that if he's expected to play 11 minutes, his projection is about 13. If he's going to play 30 minutes, his projection maybe jumps to about 34. So you could make that kind of quick adjustment here. And again, a lot of times the value of doing this here is not so much beating Saberson Sims to the punch and updating a couple minutes ahead. It's getting this in a lot of times so that you can get, like when I do this kind of thing, it's so I can get my turbo lineups built and my showdown lineups built while I'm waiting to run my main late swap on my main slate builds just to get more kind of in-progress going quicker. Another example of where this is important uh, or where this can be useful is if you want a rough assessment. Actually, this is probably the best example of it. Let's say it's 525 and we get news that AD is out, right? And you are trying to get a late swap in for the 530 games. That sim is probably not going to run before the 530 games lock. It might, but it probably won't, right? That's a very quick turnaround for a game that's starting at six o'clock. But it is still somewhat valuable to you to know, have a sense of what the Lakers projections might look like here before you run that late swap. That's where that could be useful. So if that was actually happening right now for me, I would probably uncheck the player, try to get a sense of who is the player that's going to occupy most of those minutes here, right? Um, and even if you're even if you're close, right, you can always, the main thing is just trying to get close here, right? You can always kind of fix that later with the actual sim data. So maybe we say that, okay, now we think Jared Vanderbilt's going to get about 32 minutes. He's a little bit less than a fantasy point per minute player. So maybe he gets a projection of like 28 and we think Christian Wood is going to play, you know, 28 or so minutes. So we give him a projection of 30 and we spread out usage to a bunch of other players on this team here, maybe in the form of a five to 10, a 10% projection adjustment. So LeBron goes to 53, D'Angelo Russell goes to, you know, say 37, uh, Austin Reeves goes to 33, maybe Torian Prince gets a boost, Hachimura gets a boost, something like that, right? Now we run this swap with this information at 530, we pump a bunch of Lakers into all of our lineups, and when the sim actually runs at 610 or what, or not 610, at 540 or whatever it is, then we remove our custom projections that we've set here, and we've kind of put ourselves in a position to adjust quickly. I think a lot of the frustrations I see in the discord are that those kinds of situations where like we get the news about the game at six, right before five 30 and we do everything we can on our end to update that information accurately. And in a timely fashion, but sometimes it's not going to happen. Everybody's under that same time crunch, right? Doing this in a way that's just directionally correct is going to add quite a bit of value for you because there's, there are, you know, thousands of players that are waiting for their own individual sources to update before this game, before these games lock, there are a handful of players that take that into their own hands and make those adjustments to capture 80% of the value here, waiting for Saberson to backstop the last 20% of that value. That's all I think about it. Um, Isaac says, when late swapping, do I need to update ownership to Saberson live? You actually don't. You can. It can be useful just to look at, but you are automatically adjusting for live fields if this is checked in your contest sims. 
So, uh, and if you're interested in an annual plan, shoot us an email, support at sabersim.com. <laughs> um, Eagle, I recommend uh, Copper Mountain is my home mountain if you're looking for, for skiing here. I don't know if I can, uh, I, I don't know if I can arrange being a wingman for you, uh, this weekend, but I hope you enjoy your time here in, in Denver. Uh, Patrick says, how interesting do you bump up your min uniques after the first initial late swap? So I'm often bumping them down. Actually, I'm getting less diversified as the slate is going on, right? Because, you know, at towards the end of the slate, I'm less, the, uh, the distributions of your possible outcomes are getting smaller and smaller, right? we kind of know more and more where lineups are going to finish. So the information is, is becoming, you know, more known. I want you to just maximize that profit, right? Another way of thinking about min uniques is you are diversifying because of the uncertainty in your initial measurements. You may say this lineup, it, these 150 lineups are the best lineups in the pool. They have the highest ROI, but there's a lot of uncertainty in that measurement early on because there's a lot of unknowns. There's a lot of things that have yet to happen. 75% of the way through the slate, when games are finishing, players' distributions are just converging on what they actually scored. Some players' games maybe are done and their distribution is just what they scored. There's less uncertainty there, and now I just want to maximize profit. So I'm, I'm generally cooling down on min uniques as the slate goes on. And I don't have like a one-size-fits-all description of how I tend to do that, but I am generally bringing my min uniques down as the slate is progressing. Um, will the NASCAR model be updated this year? I think we always tend to do at least a little bit of like a, a tune-up, um, pun unintended there, um, for most sports before the the starts of seasons kick off. So I'm sure we'll, especially, you know, with contest sims, I think would be the big one. I'm sure we'll have at least a, a look at our fields, see how they're looking before the start of the season. So how would you go about using Saberson to play for NBA late swap? Would you just lock in questionable players? Um, I, so I don't think that is a requirement. I like, you certainly don't need to lock in questionable players. Right. Um, and most slates, I don't, there will often be enough. There will often be enough players unlocked in your lineups to update and react to news as the slate is breaking. Um, I do think, you know, on slates where there is very impactful news much later in the slate, sometimes I think intentionally forcing a few players from the late game can be a, a decent lineup rule to set up on your build here to kind of just make sure that those that you're preserving some spots in your lineups. So I don't know if we have a good example of that here tonight. Let's say Jokic was questionable, right? Where it's like last game of the night, if he's out, it really totally changes the slate. I want to preserve as much swap equity as I can for as long as I can. One thing you can do here is create a rule and basically create a group and just say something like use at least three players from the Nuggets or the Bucks, something like this, and build with this at lock and then Leave this on until you get to a slate where either you get news about Jokic playing in or out, 
or you get some other impactful news that makes you want to break this rule, right? Like this is basically, I think about this less as use at least three bucks or nuggets in my lineups and more about you make sure every lineup has at least three player slots in it until I say, I don't want that anymore. And once you got to the point, you know, maybe we, again, maybe we get the surprise Anthony Davis or not so much a surprise. Maybe we get Anthony Davis out at six o'clock. You could take this rule off and have swapped there. I will sometimes employ that kind of strategy on a slate where there is a key questionable player very late in the slate. But even if you're not doing that on Sabersim, each of your lineups that get swapped are getting swapped into the best possible versions of what they can become with the news that we have available. So can be a useful tool for the right slate, but it's not something I do all the time. All right. Uh, Carrington said, if we do get the guys who are showing up in our pool percent as high or close to their ownership, are those instances where we should be trying to match or go over the field of a given player? In a general sense, if you have a guy, a, a player who's showing up in your pool that is much higher than their ownership projection, that is generally a player I want to be over on as well. Um, a player that is showing up in the pool less often than their ownership projection is probably a player that I want to be under on. That's kind of a general, a general case. And that, that is often what Saberson will kind of push you in the direction of, or, or send you in that direction, especially in a sport like NBA in sports that are less normally distributed with how players tend to perform uh, MLB or hockey or NFL that will, you'll be able to add a little bit more value there in a sport like NBA that kind of tends to happen automatically. So there is no way to upload more than 5,000 lineups is your pool at the moment. Um, and yes, yeah, that doing that analysis of looking at your pool exposure versus ownership projection and making adjustments to exposures, that's, that's, yeah, that's a fine opportunity to make adjustments to exposures. Uh, if I'm late swapping and my number of lineups available is very low, even on one unique, does that mean that it is keeping most of my lineups the same and only swapping the lineups it can swap? Yes, I believe so. I think so. Or that's a bug. I'm assuming, meaning that your, your lineups getting returned is a lower number than the lineups you requested. Sounds kind of buggy to me. That might be something to, to submit a report for. I don't think I've seen that before on my end. So um, if you are in a time crunch and that is just like something is non-functional, I would reset your settings and try another swap with base settings. But um, earlier you talked about looking at upside versus what is in the pool. Isn't value looking at the same thing? Yeah, it kind of is. So these are, they're just different in market inefficiencies, right? Value is a inefficiency based on the salary of the player, the projection versus the salary, right? Uh, the salaries that DraftKings or FanDuel sets are essentially projections. They are, these, these are essentially projections. Uh, Value is Saber Sam or anybody else's projection versus what the site's presumed projection for a player was, right? So the highest value players in the pool are the most inefficiently costed players, right? They are, they deliver many fantasy points per the dollar you spend to play them. 
the looking at pool exposure versus ownership is also an inefficiency in the market. It's just a different one. The it's almost it's it's kind of similar though. The percent of lineups that contain a player in the form of ownership is an assessment of of the field of the market as a whole, assessing how good of a play is that player on the slate. If the if that if that market was perfect, every player roughly would be rostered in the percentage of lineups at the same rate that they were in the winning lineup. It gets a little weird because then like these lineups are also competing against each other. But if the field is going to roster David Roddy at 42.79%, it is roughly saying that that's what the field has agreed upon is that player's probability of being in the winning lineup. Well, when you run your build on Saberstim, if he shows up in 60% of your field, right? And actually to be even more specific, this would be on a very high sim diversity setting is how you would kind of want to do this. But if he shows up in 60% of your lineups in the Saberstim sims, then that means this number is actually inefficient. So in the same way that you would be inclined to be overexposed to a player that DraftKings undercosted in their salaries, you would also want to be overexposed to a player that the field undercosted in the form of their ownership projection. So just kind of two different market inefficiencies there on the pricing and on the ownership projection, but they are very similar. So they're not, they're not literally the same thing. Value is measuring a different thing. Um, value is in a way, actually what the, the column that value is most similar to is actually leverage. Um, and we had actually talked, value is expressed as a ratio it's projection over salary. Leverage is expressed as a difference. It is exposure minus ownership projection. We had talked for a time about expressing leverage as a ratio, which would make it then very similar to your value. It does get a little bit weird at very low ownership projections. You start to see very weird leverages expressed as a ratio. Um, if a player is expected to be 1% owned and you have 8% of that player in your pool, that will be shown as a very, very high leverage as a ratio, which isn't really indicative of your actual portfolio. Anyway, this is a tangent, but value and leverage actually have, have similarities in, in kind of what those columns are intended to do. So uh, Noah said, is there a way to set Sims to run players between 4,500 and 8,500 in price? So no punts and no stars. Yeah, I mean, you can filter that out. So you can add a filter here and say, you know, only show me players that have a salary uh, greater than 40 four and um also then set a filter and say only show me players that have a salary of less than 86 and that would that would get you there um cool all right we are all caught up on questions so we will go ahead and wrap it up there i appreciate everybody hanging out with me here for the past hour and a half or so this was fun it's been a little while since i've done these it's always fun to come back on office hours uh, and, and do one of these shows here so uh andrew will be back tomorrow for all the andrew stands that are in chat um and give him a, a warm welcome back when he's he's back on the show tomorrow uh, as always, if you have questions uh, that I didn't get to here today or you catch the recording of the show and there were things that you found confusing or unclear in anything I was talking about, you can always 
reach back out in the Discord server or email us support at sabersim.com. Uh, but in the meantime, um, thanks again for everybody for watching. Enjoy the NBA slate tonight or whatever other DFS you're getting into here. And we'll see you later. Take care.